Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars, part two of our 88th running of the 24-hour of Le Mans review, featuring the mighty fine residents of those United Kingdoms, that being Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com. I don't know if he has a title, but we refer to him as the Young Jedi of DailySportsCar.com, that being Stephen Kilby. Got part one done. We had so many questions. There's no way we could have done it in one episode without blowing up my hard drive. So we're back, <laughs> hoping to get this finished here within an hour, hour and a half or less, gents. As always, we're going to kick off by saying thank you to the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and TorontoMotorsports.com, which I think I already said, but I love them so much I wanted to say it twice. Cooper Tires. You know, I mean, uh, they're they're pretty darn good there too. So, yeah, we're giving a little bit of double love. If you're not careful, you might get triple love. Although I do believe that's illegal mm. in some states, not where I'm from though. Um, hey, we're going to talk about that Le Mans thing, as some folks love mm. to spell as one word and mispronounce. Exactly. But before we get to that, all driven by our usual awesome listener questions, we've had some news confirmed overnight. Mr. Goodwin, a certain mm-hmm. Gerard Nouveau will be completing his tour as a leader of the FI World Endurance Championship, moving on the end of December 31st to unnamed things. Said today that he does not have that lined up, but tell us about this. Not the biggest shock in the world, but also something pretty significant to consider. It's very, it's very significant, so So Gerard has been at the helm of LMEM, which is the organising body for the FI World Endurance Championship and the European Le Mans Series and its supports package for, well, certainly uh, WEC for, what is it now, 10 years. Uh, so 2011, before the WEC was established, it was his job to get that into place and then run it. And it has been, how can we say this, a decade of peaks and troughs. Um, And as the guy responsible at times, some of those troughs tend to be laid at his door. And some of those peaks, uh, I guess he would quite rightly wish to take some, uh, some credit for that too. I'll say this about Gerard. Gerard, at his best, is a very engaging human being. Totally agree. I think he... I think he's uh, grown into that role in very many ways. He's been, at times, exceptionally kind to me personally. What? Um, he's given me opportunity. No, no, no. He's been. <laughs> I just heard of me personally with no hashtag. I think you actually oh, use that phrase. I don't oh, think that God. was. I don't think that was a cute insert. So, I think no, you no, actually pulled a foul here. Uh, sorry, I'm gone. I'll just give myself a yellow card. Yellow card Holy given. crap, Goodwin! What is wrong with you? Husky is looking disappointed at me. Uh, that's the worst thing in the world, but a husky looks disappointed at me. All right, so, back on track. But to hashtag me personally, uh, he's been exceptionally kind at times, you know, and in these straightened times, it needed a kind of steady hand on the tiller. I think they've made some good moves. Uh, he and I have had, I think, a pretty productive relationship in terms of me adopting that persona, as you would be as a member of his press corps, of being constructively critical. Um, it's at times been difficult to navigate those waters because, uh, of course, I'm also contracted to his team to do TV commentary. Um, he'll be 
finishing at the end of this year. It's been a very interesting day. Uh, we had a little bit of notice that something was coming. It was pretty clear it was one of two things, uh, one of which would have been that we're not going to Bahrain, but we are. The other one, it was clear at that point, once I knew that that was the case, that uh, we were about to hear that he was moving on. Um, the most interesting thing for me about that announcement is not the timing. It was the manner of it. It was the the, the uh, headline for the press release uh, said the words, new organisation. Now, that doesn't say CEO steps down. That's new organisation. So I do wonder what else is going to be coming in the wake of this announcement. As you might imagine, MP, um, I've been on the phone all day, and for the most part, it's been people calling me rather than me calling them, uh, with names being banded about. There are a number of names being banded about uh, in response to this one. Uh, I can tell you the name Chase Carey has been banded about, usually with people laughing straight afterwards. Um, uh, Eric Bouillet, who is uh, ex-McLaren, of course, and now in charge of the French Grand Prix, has been um, banded about. Uh, Philippe Sicard, who heads up the DAMS organisation. That name has been in the mix. DAMS, of course, based where? In Le Mans. And in addition to that, two names that are currently within the ACO family. We'll come and talk about that in a minute. But by the way, this is all just tittle-tattle. Okay, before we get into anything else, this is not saying this is the shortlist. These are names that have been mentioned by sensible people having sensible conversations about a sensible and important discussion today. The two names that have come forward uh, into my orbit, um, from, and, and in the case of both these names, from more than one person, uh, the first is Vincent Beaumanil, the current sporting director of the ACO, I think is an interesting uh, name to field. The other one is the current um, I guess opposite number for Girard at the Asian LMEM, Cyril Teshvalen. Uh, and the question, I guess, would be this. And I, I'd ask you this question, MP. At this point in proceedings, with Le Mans hypercar coming, with LMDH clearly coming along uh, just a little behind it, and with the, uh, the words that have come out of HPD's mouths today indicating very strongly that they, they want to be there too, um, with balance of performance coming with that, with the GT debate coming as well, you've got your sporting director at the ACO who's responsible for the rule book and responsible for that interaction with the manufacturers. Would you want, as the ACO, one of your own at the helm of your biggest product, uh, your biggest championship product? I think the answer is you would. And my guess would be rather than actually taking a risk of bringing in talent, in parentheses, from outside, wouldn't you go with a known quantity where you've got well-established relationships with your senior um, principals within the ACO, for that matter, the FIA, and keep it in-house? For my money, that's that's the way that I would turn if I was going to be the person putting my finger on the, uh, rather my, uh, my hand on the pen signing the contract uh, come January. Quit putting your finger on things, by the way, you've been warned. Hello. Spot on. The progress of getting LMDH, LMH, LHM, all variety of things that start with L's in terms of these new dueling, but in theory combined, converged prototype formulas together, too far advanced to say, okay, complete outsider who might be excellent in the thing that you do, but we would have to spend weeks, if not more, 
trying to get you up to speed about who we are, what we do, where we've been, the missteps, the positives, and how we got to where we are today to then have the first possibility of constructive dialogue to move these dueling hypercar and American P2, call it DPI Mm 2.0. There'd have to be so much work in bringing an outsider in to get to a place where you could gain any additional ground. So I'm with you. If it's not Cyril, who I think is would be the perfect candidate, I've made no no efforts to disguise the fact that I think he is sublimely talented and his personality is one that I think is what could do the most favors to the ACO, WEC, and IMSA as these three parties combine and discuss and try and form unions to do things positively in the future. I think this would absolutely have to be a pick from inside. If it weren't Graham, to your exact point, it would be a shock because I think it would just show us that folks don't grasp uh, inside uh, the ACO and FIA and LMEM uh, of where they are right now. A quick little note just to your mention about the headline there, uh, at least from the ACO, it said new organization to lead LMEM. So as I interpreted that, uh, the Lamont Endurance Management, which is, call it the the management firm that runs uh, the WEC as led by Girard, that's staying in place, not going anywhere, I think is just uh, French to English mortification. Uh, That maybe was a little bit uh, oddly phrased, but... As I interpret it, they're just truly looking about or looking at new management structure, uh, definitely from a top position standpoint. But the, the quick thing I'll add here, just to, to close and throw it back to you, Graham, let's also not discount how Gerard, especially over the last year, as we've had convergence coming, formally announced at Daytona in January. All the things that have followed since, the things leading into it, uh, Gerard reputationally has become a roadblock. And I'm speaking from the North American vantage point. Cannot offer, obviously, any credible insight from the European uh, views of Gerard. But I can tell you, as someone who has his ear and a variety of other body parts to the ground trying to pick up, uh, what they are uh, doing and saying and feeling in and around Daytona Beach. I know that while Gerard is certainly respected for all he has achieved with the WEC, I also know that there are folks who routinely bristle when uh, he enters the conversation and when he gets involved in these very serious planning efforts and attempts to converge and work together. I fear there might have been pretty strong suggestions made privately that if we're going to go forward and achieve all of these great things, Graham and Stephen, that we want for international sports cars, all three of these parties working together, that the odds would be higher of achieving those things if there were a person, new person, atop LMEM. What you, you'd guess, wouldn't you? We're going to find the answers to those questions, or at least that major question, uh, in weeks rather than months. Uh, my guess is that the process is already well underway, and we'll start to hear, I'm sure, some of the politicking that goes with that. Makes me wonder why Stephen's so quiet. 
Is he uh, possibly I, the new he might be leader? Are you, Stephen? Do we have the new leader of LMEM in this conversation? Is that for, why you're so just, quiet? Just looking for white smoke? Oh, there is none. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say it's probably going to be Scott Atherton. There is one other thing I will chuck into the mix here, which is I have had further conversations with, with some of those same people as to whether or not ACO may have taken a bit of a learning, um, a, a bit of a lesson from the way that uh, they dealt with Scott Atherton's uh, successor succession with uh, John Doonan. There's never been a point in the time that I've been involved with uh, top-class uh, sports car racing where the viewpoint of a manufacturer is going to be more important. And John certainly brings with him that credibility with uh, the manufacturers that IMSA, and IMSA have been incredibly successful in, in both retaining and gaining manufacturers over that period of time, uh, that maybe that's something that might be taken into account. Might we be talking about you know, okay, there's going to have to be clearly someone at the top of the shop, but might we be talking about, you know, a new look to that organisation? Um, you know, we have got this, 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 this. Uh, the, the cut at the moment is WC and ELMS in one organisation, Asia Le Mans Series within another separate management organisation. That sort of doesn't make sense. Um, if you're going to have a cut, surely the cut should be at the continental level, or not at all that you've got one person responsible for the entire pyramid, and then you've got uh, management in place for each of those series. Uh, I think there is going to be a hashtag wait and see uh, that could be quite interesting in terms of the direction they take, bearing in mind that the only one of those products, those series, that is going to involve this debate about LMDH, Le Mans Hypercar, grandfathered LMP1, is the WEC that has a whole different level of technical um, complication to it that the European Le Mans series, the Michelin Le Mans Cup, the Asia Le Mans series simply do not have. And I do wonder whether or not there should be some thought given just, just exactly where you put those lines of communication in the future. Uh, that, I think, will be an interesting moment. I think interesting is a beautifully understated way of uh, <laughs> presenting that, my friend. All right, let's get to... As many questiones as we can. I have about an hour and 15-ish remaining. Need to call and record something with young Michael Shank, the uh, soon-to-be newest Acura DPI entrant coming in 2021, and also uh, the shocker of Wayne Taylor Racing moving over to the Acura camp, which we trailed in uh, part one of this. We didn't say what it was. We just said that there was significant news leading into yep. Mid Ohio. But let's get going here in as many post Lamar bits as possible. Since we have Gerard Naveau's possible replacement sitting next to you, Graham, why don't we go Again. to him here yep. first? Uh, this question comes in from Tigera380. Yet again, going to need some insight on what that screen name is and how you came up with it. Uh, Steven, Tigera380, who we don't know its gender, could be gender-free, asks... Sorry to go slightly off topic. Uh, on the stream, the live stream, Graham mentioned how AF Course has been a, at pretty much every sports car race he has attended, apart from the Nurburgring 24. Stephen, why does AF Course not participate 
in the Nurburgring 24. Probably because I've got so much other stuff to do around the time of the Nurburgring 24 hours because it's just before them on that they can't, can't afford to, to take the extra week off. I think it's probably more down to the fact that when they go GT3 racing, of course, it relies on customers and people funding the effort the majority of the time. They've never really been an organisation that stuck pro cars into the Spa 24 hours regularly um, and Blanc Pan. Although they will this year. Yeah, although they will this year. Um, but in the past... Um, they've supported more customer pro-am-based entries, and I think for the for the Nurburgring 24 Hours, it, it's going to come down to are there people there that are willing to to buy their way into getting a of course at those events. I think the other the two things are it's the VLN and um, the NLS as it is now on the Nurburgring, such a specialist marketplace. And until incredibly recently, Ferrari just weren't really present there. There was the odd of uh, the odd entry here and there. But they really weren't present. It's only really with the Racing One team in their um, lower class 458 that was retired at the beginning of this year and now the Octane 126 effort in their second full year that we've actually seen uh, teams coming with a multi-year effort and investing in the Ferrari product. And now all of a sudden we've got NLS race winning cars. Wouldn't surprise me in this wacky world we now live in. If that kind of progress continued, if we didn't see uh, an AF Corsa customer stepping up in the future, you're right, Tegera 380, uh, it is a bit of a misnomer. It is a bit of a, kind of an odd one that they don't, but it is more or less the only, uh, the only um, major international race that I cover, we cover, that uh, we've never had an AF Corsa run car. Mm. Well, now we've seen Ferraris win and, and less competition this year. Um, but it, there was two wins, but one of them was taken away, yep. rightly. Um Maybe that'll spur something on because I was actually writing about this today and we've not really, aside from this year, seen a really serious front-running Ferrari effort since, since like, the Hankook yep. Hank Farmacker cars. You know, Farmbacker and Simonson back in the day and that was a thing they to behold. Were, they were awesome. They were awesome. So there you go. That's the end of that one, MP. Well, we're done with the episode, guys. Thanks for calling in. <laughs> Great. Okay, no, we're going to keep going here. Uh, why don't we jump over to... The mighty, we're back, SRA Smoking Puppy 841, still waiting on the answer of how you got that number, asks, who do you think put in the most underrated performance during 24 hours? See, Graham, you're getting schooled by our listeners. Hashtag me personally. I feel (laughs) like Panis Racing. Panny Racing had a strong, quiet run to a podium. What thinks you? I think it's a good call, is the straight answer. I think it's a great call, Palace Racing. They were there and thereabouts. They were one of those teams that had a kind of relatively error-free race in a race where P2 will have a very much more troubled um, Le Mans 24 hours than we're used to. I had a a long conversation, by the way, earlier today with um, Sam Hignett at uh, Jota Sports. Sam pointed out one aspect of the, the... LMP2 uh, woes that had not immediately occurred to me. I think I said on the part one of this that for the most part, the, the teams having the, the early serious problems were WC teams. He pointed out another thing is for the most part, there were teams that ran two car efforts and he's absolutely right. Um, so I think they're a little bit perplexed. Um, it, it, Panis is, has been a strong team for quite a wee while and you cannot beat uh experience at Le Mans and when you've got you know your gentleman driver ranked uh, within the team being one Julien Canal someone who's won the race in class three times he knows what to do 
in his stint. It's not just drive quickly, it's drive smartly. And he did that. He kept out of trouble. Uh, they had the odd wrinkle to their race, but they were there when others stumbled. And you know, it, it's an interesting one where you look back and see, just see where the 31 car was on the first hour, second hour, third hour. You can see all of this, by the way, on the Alcamel uh, uh, timing pages. All those, those documents are available to you publicly. Um, and just see where they were. And they were always there and thereabouts. Their Goodyear tyres as well didn't let them down. I think that is a very good call indeed. The other underrated performance that I would offer um, for, uh, it actually was a podium-sitting performance. And they're sort of underrated most of the time. We just mentioned AF Corsa. But the Francois Perodo Manu, 24 races at Le Mans Collard, and newly minted uh, Ferrari factory driver Nicholas Nielsen in the 83 car, they're not getting, I don't think, enough credit for what has been a very convincing season so far. They're in a championship fight at the last race in Bahrain for GTE Am. But that was another performance that, that was always there, always had the potential, should that TF Sport car have stumbled, to be in for a potential win and absolutely we're in the hunt um, and waiting for uh, both their performance to, to tell and for others mistakes to come forward to be in the hunt for a podium. And that's exactly what they got. Speaking of mistakes, oh. I just hit the microphone with my coffee mug uh, and another mistake. Since you mentioned uh, our part one episode, I failed to mention my appreciation while we were discussing the Eurosport coverage of Toadie, Toadie, we're just going to stick Toadie, with it. Toadie movies. Toadie movies. <laughs> Good old Toadie movies. <laughs> sound like you're showing appreciation there. Yes, it. 100%. <laughs> uh, Toadie movies, <laughs> contributions from Pit Lane. It seemed yeah. like there were some production failures and misalignments where Toadie, Toby Moody, but we'll go with Toadie movie. Um, Toady was trying to get their attention, trying to get them to look at certain things. Uh, I know in particular when we had the uh, Toyota with its turbo issues was really trying to get them to zoom in so we could see in finer detail what he was discussing. Instead, we got a really wide shot that just offered nothing. But, yeah, I failed to mention the good old uh, Toady movie. Um, thumbs up to you, brother. You were trying to fight the good fight, even if uh, you were an army of one sometimes on pit lane. Um, there we go. Okay, moving on. Not that I don't want to hear your thoughts about the uh, uh, team, Stephen, that uh, we definitely should recognize for an underrated performance. But if we do two answers for every question, we're never going to get through all. So that's why the next one's going to you. Back from Nikolai B. Says, should it be a concern? that out of 29 LMPs taking the start, 24 were Arekas, particularly given the 10-year homologation for the next LMP2 regs, uh, effectively continuing, Nikolai believes, Areca's iron grip on ACO prototype racing. Also asks, has a restriction once again to four P2 chassis manufacturers cut costs? And then I'll just throw in here, I saw a little promo graphic from Areca that include the Toyotas, include the rebadged uh, Alpines and Orisles and you name it. And I believe the top 10 finishers overall at this year's event uh, all either came from Areca's shop or had heavy Areca design and management influence. There's there's some good stuff going on here with uh, Hugh Deshonak's little family of speed and mirth, right? Yeah, certainly. it's It's been... 
I think remarkable to see how in this world where we've got four manufacturers in for P2 that one of them has just far and away produced the best car and it's kind of inevitable that if you get to that point where you've frozen the homologation for these things that if one car sticks out as the best as as we've seen in P3 as well it can just dominate the marketplace um, and eventually everyone will swap over it. I've, I think it's a concern for certainly Ligier, Multimatic and Delara because they've kind of been frozen out um, and the fact that the Joker package change that we saw early on in this cycle didn't really have the effect that we thought it was going to. Um, I think there's certainly going to be some interesting conversations behind the scenes as we get into the next range of P2 cars in the coming years as to what do we do to combat this? What do we do to make it a bit more of a an open competition between the four of them where all, all four manufacturers can produce something that customers want to run? Because outside of IMSA, where we've had different chassis manufacturers producing DPI cars or being partnered up with manufacturers for those. It's just been almost no competition for most of the time, is there? I mean, the the defining factor now at the death, if you like, of this um, uh, LMP2 cycle has been that we've now got to the stage of dominance, which means that the tyre manufacturers are developing cars around the Orica. So developing tyres rather around the Orica, no doubt about that whatsoever. So that really has has led to the kind of vertical downward curve for absolutely everybody else. The final thing I'd say on this MP is this. If the other three chassis manufacturers haven't learned through this process what it is they need to take to the table in negotiating a future development and joker process, then they are pretty dumb. They really should be going in there and saying, this didn't work. If we find ourselves in this process and this this uh, this um, stage again with the new chassis, which should come, by the way, for LMP2 a year after LMDH, based on the same chassis technology, uh, then they haven't learned what should, and what I know for them has been a very hard lesson indeed. We're going to move to the Porsche GTE Pro WTF portion of the episode. Uh, We're going to look at questions from our pal Jacob Baim, Daniel Summersgill, Eric Sheen, Kevin Pinkston, Alex Eichmiller, and throwing about 40 other folks as well. Um, Jacob says, what do you reckon was the reason behind the Pro Porsches falling back so badly on pace and trap speed, mentioning their peak 5 kph lower than the Astons? Uh, curious whether BOP might have been the thing, uh, stating that BOP for the Aston and Ferrari seemed to be spot on. So was it just a case of the RSR 19s being not quite ironed out yet? Uh, Also mentions that in qualifying at Spa, those same Porsches were 2.5 to 3 kph slower in trap speed. Daniel says, what on earth happened to the Porsche GT team's pace? Uh, Eric says the same, but uses all caps. Um, yeah. What happened here? Because this was, this was an outlier that I'm sure Aston Martin fans weren't too bothered about, but knowing that Porsche is the one brand that the planet earth identifies with sports car racing, seeing the factory Porsche GT team nowhere to be found in terms of truly competitive race-winning potential pace. What happened, y'all? Um, I, I genuinely don't know. It's a straight answer. Uh, I've heard a few 
minor moans from within the Porsche camp talking about BOP. I'm not buying that, is the honest answer. If that was the case, then they must have gone in with blinkers on. They must have known where they were on performance. Certainly didn't see any signs of the other cars sandbagging. From my memory, Aston Martin either led or were close to leading every session uh, in the race meeting at Le Mans. Uh, I do like, by the way, the thoughts that Daniel Summerskill comes up with in his point. Were they running some kind of compromised settings on that car, on those cars, anticipating what we didn't get, which was rain? More or less every forecast coming into the race suggested we were going to get pretty heavy rain for extended periods of that race. And we simply didn't. We barely got a drop. We got a couple of uh, places on the circuit where there was you know, a few drops on the windscreen and that was it. Maybe they did that, but they're just... Here's the thing, MP. They're smarter than that. They're better than that. They're world championship defending team. And they seem to come in in sleepwalk mode. It, it didn't make sense to me at all that those cars were as uncompetitive as they were. You then get to the second part. Is it something about this upgraded... RSR package, the 19 package. Well, I don't think it's that either. I had a long conversation with one of the um, the privateer Porsche teams and asked them what their plans were for next year. And as part of that said, is there a thought that you will just bring these cars back and offer that commercially as your package? To which the answer was no, because the new car is such a step from the cars, the, 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 the big blurry rear exit um, exhaust cars, such a step, we would be nowhere. So they're convinced that there is a step in, in terms of performance in the new car to the point where their old cars are rendered obsolete. What it, I, I, I don't know. We, we know there's this new package coming um, with a central exhaust again, uh, which is supposed to be you know more aerodynamically uh, effective for 2020. But for me, I am really struggling not to come to the conclusion that someone messed up really badly within the Porsche family ahead of that race. I am absolutely not buying in any way, shape or form that BOP was the major issue here. You don't buy that it wasn't just because there wasn't a test day and there wasn't that extra preparation. The same applies to the other two major teams. Uh, no, same, no, that's right. But they've, uh, they've run that car on that circuit before. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, they have. But I don't think it's that dramatically different. No, they, no, they, no. You know, they've got simulator technology at Porsche now that can that can accommodate that. They've got plenty of data from uh, from the circuit de la Sarthe. Uh, I don't get it, and I'm struggling to come up with an answer other than. It may be I'm wrong, and it was purely BOP. But I'm I not have, really buying that. I have heard Graham, and I truly wish I could tell you who shared the information and what the information was. I cannot do that in either instance. But I have I have heard a I don't even want to call it a theory. I would say a fact on something related to the team and its preparations of its cars specifically for Le Mans that very well could have and should have put them in this position. And I can say that your assertion that it is not BOP related. BOP, by and large, weight or power are the, the norms that get worked in terms of dialing one or the other up 
Uh, this is an area that I've heard that would have led to the lack of performance and the lack of crisp top speed figures that would have been outside the bounds of BOP and well within the capability of the team to execute at a higher level. And again, I wish I could say more. I can't. But when I heard it, I immediately said, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. 100% So maybe in the future I can, maybe at some point in the future I can go into more detail, but I came away with absolute clarity as to why we did not have competitive Porsches in the race. Um, Let's jump to where we go in here. All right, let me scroll through 15 more pages of what the F Porsche questions. Um, You know who we have? We have our good pal Johannes Galica, who we haven't Aye. right. We have not had the the sage voice on our show for a little while. So we're we should have just opened with this. Forget all the Gerard Nouveau stuff. Whatever. Johannes asks: Should the entry hurdle for Le Mans drivers be raised along the lines of say the uh, Nordschleife licensing criterion? So strange to think getting into Le Mans is easier than getting into the N24. Prior experience is one of the uh, in one of the regional series plus the road to Le Mans should be mandatory. Closes by saying some drivers in this year's race did not belong there. That was a top semi-frequent topic of conversation uh, and oh, little yeah. vignettes during the race as well on the mighty, mighty Eurosport of will Michael Fassbender be following the road to Le Mans to get in and blah, blah, blah. Um, are we creating too Absolutely. wide of a berth to get people into the race for the sake of a Graham? Uh, I think the answer is I share some of those concerns. It was, by the way, I've heard those concerns in prior years, but I heard a lot of them this year. Um, Mercifully, we didn't have terribly many incidents where it was comedically bad driving that caused an incident. We did see uh, some drivers who were clearly struggling in that environment, but it wasn't comedically bad. I mean, Stephen's been there in some years where we've seen drivers do insanely stupid things. <laughs> yeah, uh, properly stupid. Properly <laughs> stupid things. I mean, there, there are legendary laps of three and four if it weren't so dangerous, it would be laugh out loud, funny errors, which will go down in Le Mans history. But um, do I think it's high time that there was a minimum uh, qualification level? I absolutely 100% do. Uh, I think it wouldn't be difficult to do that. Uh, I think it would mean that one or two teams struggle to get an effort to the uh, commercial effort, rather, to the grid. But I don't think that would be necessarily the worst thing in the world. We've got a, a, a um, culture now where for teams to take up their entry to Le Mans, they have to enter a full season of something in the ACO or IMSA. Uh, and I think that should also apply to drivers and in particular to uh, to bronze and silver ranked rookie drivers less so gold and platinum these are supposed to be professional drivers and should be good to go but certainly for bronze and silver rookie drivers my view would be that there should be a qualifying minimum applied now the speeds have been too high you look at the closing speeds between a gtm car and an mp1 car they are 
horrendous. Um, so, Johannes, number one, great to see your name on that question sheet. Um, hope to speak to you soon, my friend. And two, I completely agree. Have an idea for a fun off-season listener adventure. Uh, this is clearly inspired by Johannes. We should make an effort to go back, not necessarily the last couple of years, but reach back maybe the 80s, mid to late 80s, throughout the 90s, and do a modern qualification filter or scrub. Look at the entry list from the 1990 race and come up with the total number of drivers involved and then go through and try and apply modern licensing requirements, even though we're talking now that they still might be a little bit too lax. I bet you minimum half the field does not take part in the race. If we could go back in time and uh, run many, many fields through this uh, requirement process. So that might be a bit of a fun or really lame off-season idea. Uh, Let's go to Doug Bonham. Hey there, Doug. Says, two quick notes. How happy must the Aston Martin crews be to take home the win in both GTE classes? This is excellent stuff from that program. I will tell you the GTE AM result is the one that's the one that made me the happiest of all the results to come from sunday uh yeah and look as a proud brit delighted to say that the three class results were all with british teams um amused to see although i bet they weren't um that uh was it which which podium was it that showed the it was uh gt pro wasn't it showed three Union Jacks, incorrectly, AF Corsa, were on the podium under a Union Jack, wow. which must have been great for James Clardo. And a Master sl- Ferrari must have loved it. Sl- Quite sl- correct, <laughs> by the way. Considering what the Romans did to your fair little island, I think that it's only fair to, uh, to you know, get him back a little we bit. We sort, of, sort of got over it. But no, um, I think the, the answer on Aston Martin is luck. When that that team, Aston Martin Racing, is operating at, at its peak, there's little to touch it. And if the if the BOP smiles on them and the racing gods smile on them, there's little to touch it. I We, we answered the question yesterday about Paul Delano. We'll move on from that. Cartoon Anvil firmly employed again. TF Sports, the little team that could. We've talked about it time and again on this show, MP. Uh, they are fast becoming... The TF Corsa, the, the TF Corsa, as we say, you know, they, they are the Aston Martin version of Amata Ferrari's team. You've got those three, haven't you? In, in this side of the pond, you've got AF Corsa uh, for Ferrari, Proton Competition um, for Porsche, and TF Sport for Aston Martin. Winning, 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 uh, seemingly at will. And Tom Ferrier, if you're listening, I know you often do. Congratulations, mate, because you deserve all of this massively hard-working team with a tiny, tiny core squad that prepare their cars beautifully. By the way, same day, I think, was it 1-2 in British GT and GT4 for his GT4 cars as well? On the same day, uh, just cracking stuff. Excellent. They also won the NASCAR race at Talladega, I believe, on Sunday. So there you go. Uh, I spoke to Tom, and he said his head did hurt a serious amount the day after the race. I don't think that's because the noise of the cast was too loud. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was for a completely different adult beverage-related reason. (laughs) Well done. Got a couple of nice notes here. Doug Bonham, Dennis Prokniak, uh, mentioning the uh, eye-opening Peugeot 908 Memories podcast that we captured 
uh, last year, Graham. There's still a part two to come with uh, Messieurs Bourdais and Paginot, and that one's got a lot of crazy stuff in it, too, including cat murder. Um, so we'll uh, we'll get that out. I mean, the cat murder is not funny. The story's funny, but the death part not so much. Um, can, I, can I add a quick can I add a quick Peugeot nine hundred eight postscript here? Sure. Which is, I was very very interested to see that the Peugeot nine hundred eight that Carlos Tavares drove that parade lap and actually went off at the second she came. By the way, yeah. Um, at, at one isn't owned by Porsche uh, Peugeot. It's one of the cars they sold to our good friend Bob Berridge. Uh, BBM Sports stickers on it. Steve Briggs, his master uh, mechanic team uh, wrangler and uh, historic car restorer was there advising Carlos. That is a car that Peugeot sold. So I'm not sure they've got, they've got a functional 908 left. They must have the 2009 winner. Yeah. But was that ironically one of those cars? Was it just the livery, or was that one of the cars that comedically shot itself in the twenty ten? Uh, I don't know. But I, I, oddly <laughs> enough, I've got to speak to Bob in the next couple of days. I will ask him the question, and then we'll pop it, pop it up on Daily Sports Car. But uh, <laughs> great to see the car coming back. Great to see the nine one nine being handed over to the um, the Le Mans Museum. Always good to see cars of the glorious past that race back for another go on the big circuit. It's you know they they still look. Fantastic. Sorry, MP, you crack on. And by the way, fantastic podcast. That is the kind of thing that podcasting was made for. Yeah. Podcast Uh, Santa. I did read the press release about the 919 donation and found it to be an odd kind of a a Frankenstein contribution. Apparently it was a development chassis from 2016, I think. With yep. some of, I forget the year, uh, maybe, I don't know what what year it was, but with some winning bodywork from one of the Le Mans victories added to it, and it just seemed like a, huh, well, if you're going to donate something, why not donate something with just clear provenance, not a, hey, could you dust off that old bucket in the back of the garage and, uh, you know, we'll bolt on a couple things and, yeah, all right, we'll polish it. Hey, yeah, you got a 919. I mean, they got it. I'm just saying it's one of those. Uh, huh? um, anyways, let's go to two questions about Alpine. I just Ooh. want to call it Alpine because that's what my American brain defaults to, but I'll try and not be American. Our pals, uh, Paolo Mendioro and also Jonathan Stanley. Brothwell. That's a good That's a name. That's, That's a name. I wonder if he's British. Uh, says, hello, GG and MP. We'll also throw in an SK. Uh, probably try not to call out the next WC uh, CEO there. Uh, thanks, as always, for the show. It's a lot of fun. Says, with Alpine being present in F1 next year, as well as stepping up to the top class at Le Mans, could we see this being a works Renault entry in years to come? And Paolo asks, uh, would the grandfathered rebellions for Alpine ASAP, uh, or coming ASAP, will they be given a development freeze? Uh, they'll be given rather more than that. <laughs> uh, they're going to be giving, I would imagine, uh, no ooh, <laughs> a caravan, something. So the reality is you've got to take something like 10 seconds out of those cars in qualifying base to get where you're going to need to do for the balance of performance for Le Mans hypercar. They're going to be radically slowed down. In fact, before we came on air, Stephen and I were discussing whether or not actually one of the sensible things to do might be to put the P2 engine in it because um, it certainly needs to be dialed down in terms of power. 
uh, there should be a remarkable amount of similarity between those two engines. But this is a more powerful car, a vastly more aerodynamically uh, advanced car, and a much, much lighter car than the hypercars are uh, that's going to need to be reeled in very dramatically. So two things I can tell you. One is absolutely they will have to give that car a balance of performance that gives it an opportunity to succeed. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, one, because Pierre Fiona said he's going to do it. And two is because if you were looking to attract France's biggest automaker, what you don't want to be doing in their effectively their showcase year in the top category is embarrassing them. We also know, because there's been a couple of interviews with senior executives and senior people in the uh, sporting side of Renault, that they are very engaged with the LMDH project, uh, project. So that is the angle they're looking at for, you guessed, 2023. They are also, in business and sporting terms, made it very clear they're coming looking for PSA, for Peugeot, Citroën. Uh, they are looking to bang heads with them wherever and whenever they can to go into battle in the home French and European marketplaces for starters. So do I think they are a credible add onto that list that you and I have both got, MP, of the manufacturers in the room for LMDH? 100% they're in the room and 100% they're a credible possibility. Now we've got to go through the traumas of seeing whether or not that uh, sporting aspiration can be got through the altogether rather more difficult challenge of getting a budget passed aboard. Now, when you say LMDH, are we talking Le Mans Daytona hypercar? I'm trying to remember <laughs> what I learned during the broadcast that uh, that, that you brought up. <laughs> no, it's Le Mans Daytona H. Oh, okay. Stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it just made me... It was, it was that moment in that press conference with the kind of... You know the voiceover guy? There's a voiceover guy somewhere. I'm sure... There like, was a time for... It, it, yes. <laughs> you know, like when the milkman knocks on the door for they pay the bill. Hi. You know, <laughs> how much do I owe this week? You know, it's, it's, it was that voiceover on the video... Le Mans, Daytona, H. And it was the entire room just went, what? <laughs> what? Um, and in fairness, a number of the people on the uh, top table did have the good grace to look a little bit embarrassed. And then we went through uh, the the various possibilities. I think actually John Hindoff, who was presenting the press conference, uh, challenged each of the principals to actually... Um, tell him what you thought H should stand for before John um, with how can I put this <laughs> with modesty suggested that maybe the H should be hind off John. I was I, I was just going to say on. that Come would on. be a, a perfect one hamburger could be another one yep. there's so many things uh, yep. I failed to mention in our just lavishing of love and praise for the excellence that was 24 hours of Eurosport that uh, leading into the overnight section, and I believe a second time as well that I seem to recall, um, the delightful gentleman who wanted nothing more than to wax on for the entire motor race about Bentley blowers and other things, picked up on the fact that on Friday, that being the day before the race, there was an announcement that IMSA would be going forward with a new formula, this LMDH that you 
speak of, and then went on to read some of the things about it. And where this would have been vastly interesting would have come in 2019, say, when (laughs) such information would have been taken as uh, fairly timely and worthy of presenting two folks on the world feed as it was something rooted in a little over a year ago. Unfortunately, more than once, possibly failing to have realized that the Friday announcements were indeed just building upon more than a year of information about LMDH, that this was treated as if hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Oh boy, do I have something I want to tell you. And it was magical because it just spoke to the fact that, oh, we didn't just show that we're slightly out of touch with what's happening we're more than a year off on things, but also we also foretold the future, I believe, as you described yesterday, Graham, with the hydrogen-powered Peugeot that's coming. So, look, we're covering all bases forwards and backwards in the time machine. This was just phenomenal, though. It was as if just this giant piece of breaking news had to be told to the world multiple times. I love the fact that when we get to next year's race, we're probably going to learn that the Intercontinental Le Mans Championship might evolve into some sort of World Endurance Championship. I don't know, but I, I can't wait to see what old news is brought forth as new news I, next I'm, year. I'm giggling, I'm giggling in the background, not just because of what you're saying, but because a little tableau we've got here in the makeshift studio we're broadcasting from which is that uh, dsc dog has climbed from his bed is now looking through the sliding doors into the living room at, at trudy um and Stephen has opened the door and the dog is just looking at Stephen in a most perplexed fashion as to who are you and what are you doing um and it's just a tableau of domestic pet related bliss um Dog is, I can tell you now, Dog has now gone through the door. The door is closed. We can resume the show. Le Mans, Daytona, Husky. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the dog turned on the television, put on Eurosport, and crapped on the TV. That's what I thought you were going to say. Then ate the remote so you couldn't change the channel. That's what I thought you were going to tell us. Okay, speaking of crap, let me continue the show. Uh... What's next? Jordan Hopwood asks, is Ferrari electing not to build a new car based on the F8, an indication that they might be preparing to hand over GT racing to Maserati? Uh, Maserati, which he's referring to as Maserari. Uh, They do have a new model, newish model that they have unveiled to the world. Uh, What do you think? Do you think Ferrari might? tab the the roddy to be their l m husky or l husky h or whatever the hell uh to lead them forward okay um my understanding is the new maserati mc20 is based and i'm sure many many people who are lovers of italian cars will correct me immediately on twitter when this is published is based on the 488 chassis is what i understand it to be uh i've heard a theory, I'll put it no further than that, that there is 
a kind of sort of hold here. Bear in mind, the 488 is a car that is pretty easy to convert between GT and GT3 specification. You would therefore think that a car based on that basis with a Maserati drivetrain might reasonably, if you're going to send it racing, be capable of being the same. Okay, could that be genuinely? Could that be the answer in IMSA? It might be. Okay, um, so that number one is a possibility. We don't know what Maserati's plans are for that car. They've had a history of one make races. It seems to be that they've got their eye on something different. We then get into LMDH Le Mans hypercar. No doubt in my mind, no matter what cynicism and Machiavellian nonsense we get into about what they have and haven't done in the past, Ferrari are actively and seriously considering entering the top tier of sports car racing in some fashion. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. How close they are, I don't know. Could we be looking in a position where in a year or two years' time, Ferrari becomes the brand that is in play at the top level, and Maserati becomes effectively their customer motorsport offer. We could be in that position. What do I know? Nothing. Okay. Other than the fact that there is a, a now a viable platform for Maserati to launch that kind of program from and on. Um, and other than the fact that there is clearly now a class that is probably more interesting to Ferrari than at any point in the recent past at the top tier. Other than that, and a Formula One environment that means that where budgets are going and where the need or uh, need to actually divest themselves of uh, currently employed talent uh, could give them opportunities, as it will for others. They're the kind of building blocks to a potential answer, but it is done on the basis of supposition, not on the basis of received knowledge from people within any given program. There you go. Definitive news. We're going to go to Rob Chalmers. Hey, Rob. The LMDH visual at mm -hmm. the Friday press conference had a very Porsche-y flavor. As we know, they are interested. How similar do you think the 9H1 will be to those images? Well, my understanding, uh, and they are unbranded, but my understanding is the images that were seen, uh, and there are three images doing the rounds at the moment. We ran all three of them on our story. Uh, were penned by your friend of mine, Anne Stevens, Andy Blackmore. Uh, that is my understanding of what happened there. Now, in doing that, and I've not had an in-depth conversation with Andy, I have zero doubt that he would have taken guidance, because he's that uh, kind of guy, on where those regulations were guessed to be. It, uh, what I mean by that is, dimensionally, there'll be broadly correct they're not the kind of cartoon-like things that turn out to be something very much less attractive uh, you know three years later when you see the actual car he'll also have taken guidance on the freedom that the manufacturers will have to put their brand um, visuals onto the bodywork of the car so how how close could it be it could be very close i think is the answer um what will it be when it turns up? Might be something completely different, is the straight answer. But I think what Andy will have done, and he, he, when he listens to this, he will pick up the phone or drop me a Skype message, I know, is he will have taken some guidance, and I'm sure these went through many, many drafts, to say, no, that's too much like a road car, or no, that's just right. It's a bit like the three bears and their porridge. <laughs> Made with whiskey, that one? Because I've heard that, that story. One. 
No. But no I think that I think the answer is Rob. Uh, I'm not saying it will look like that. I'm saying I think that's a good indication of the level of um, of, of manufacturer visual that could be applied to an LMDH in sharp contrast to what we've got at the moment with DPI, for instance. Oh, for that matter, with LMP1. And would Hope you so, keep it I down, Stephen? Great. Good Lord, you're just talking far too much. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to come back well, to I Andy. It's great for quiet. to see. Shh, don't want to oh, hear God. Oh, God. oh, sorry. Um, Sorry, I just love the awkward silence, and I'm going to leave it in, too. Uh, we're going to come back to our we pal Andy Blackmore in a moment. The, uh, weekend sports cars. Yeah, and oh, there you go. Yes. And you're, we're just triple talking over each other. Stephen, going to throw this to you, and I know that we kind of sort of covered it yesterday, but, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit. It's our pal Daniel Gummersill. I uh, never heard of that yeah. guy. Uh, who's asking a question, but also leading the question. Who is your team of the race? Says hashtag me personally, edX Sport for getting both of their cars back from the dead, missing qualifying and night practice, starting from pit lane a lap down to then finish 6th and 11th in P2. Definite honorable mention as well uh, for the number 88, uh, which stopped for three hours, uh, got to the end, uh, but not classified. Also, I believe, brought out 419 uh, cautions and safety cars as well with the number 88 do we what do we do with edX sport because that sure seems like the herculean effort that won't be remembered with podiums and champagne spraying but that's the fighting spirit i think Stephen, that draws so many of us to endurance racing where do they fall in your mental register of teams we should appreciate certainly right up there and lest we forget that Patrick Pillay was drafted into that effort at the very last minute and we all know Patrick Pillay is an incredibly talented man prototype expert Patrick Pillay (laughs) (laughs) well I was going to say it's not easy for anyone to just jump in a P2 car at that short notice and um, do the job he did I I want to be in the room when he has a conversation with Tandy about his uh, how his (laughs) the one went (laughs) Um, yeah well uh, if you'd have asked me about the uh, description of VDX, but I'd have said they were right up there. It's hard to look past United and TF. They just were superb. Um, and with United, it's the expectation level going in that was most impressive, is that in a field where you could make an argument for 10 or 12 cars winning this race pretty convincingly, um, many people thought that United were the clear favourites because of the amount of winning they've done this year. And to actually turn up at Le Mans on a winning streak like they are in the LMS and WC and continue that in a, such a difficult race with such a huge field is just mightily impressive. It really is incredible to see a team like that who go racing the way they do, which is you know, it's, it's a, as good, close as a factory team as you're going to get in a P2 field. Um to be able to turn up with that level of expectation and pressure and deliver. And actually, at times, look, I could have delivered a one-two. Excellent. We're coming back to our pal Andy Blackmore. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have a question here from our pal Andrew Becca. Andrew asking about Andy. I love it. Uh, both with the last name that starts with the letter B. Could they be the same person? Very possible. A word about the end of an era with Andy Blackmore's 24 hours of Le Mans spotter guides. He asks, have teams shot themselves in the foot by driving away such an iconic piece of media promoting their participation in the great race? I'll take this one to lead guys. 
I know Andy. Hello, Andy, who's listening. Uh, he and I chat frequently throughout the week. I know that this year in particular, even though we had extra months to make this happen, was the greatest challenge he has faced so far in 15 years or more of putting together the Lamont Spotter Guide in terms of finding partner or partners to look after uh, the costs to do such a thing. So great thank you to the uh, folks at Arrow, the ones uh, whose wraps cover, I would say, the vast majority of IMSA machines and Indy cars and you name it. So a huge thanks to uh, Arrow Paint and what they do for looking after Andy and sponsoring this year's Spotter Guide. The quick answer here, Mr. Baca, is... Andy did announce this is the final one, and I'm sure that it is, unless we and others can possibly entice, if not heavily suggest, or just outright badger enough companies to step in and make it so worth Andy's while financially to ensure that this fine tradition, this fine piece of media that you mentioned, keeps going. I know that Andy is having to make some decisions that are not unfamiliar to you, Graham, uh, myself as well, on, hey, there are some things we absolutely love to do and they're passion projects and they fulfill us in so many ways. But in a world of ever-shrinking budgets and income, I'm probably going to have to pair some of those passion things uh, away, get rid of them, put them into the drawer and leave them there unless... They offer enough financial incentive to keep them going. And Andy's business, I know, he continues to get tons of work doing liveries and all manner of things, things that he is, we would call his primary uh, forms of self-employment. But we can't expect the guy to put in the ridiculous numbers of hours required to put together the Lamont Spotter Guide when there isn't enough financial support to say, yes, this is a clear go. We're making it happen. And we're going to deal with all the idiocy that some uh, teams competing at Lamar insert into the process and make it hard to get the requisite liveries done and in place and driver names and all the little zillion pieces of information that goes into those spotter guides. So he's still doing the IMSA one. He's still, you know, Andy's spotter guides are not going away altogether. But, of course, Stephen and Graham, we know for sure that his Lamont Spotter Guide is something that it's not a regional thing. That is a worldwide thing. It's global. It's global. How do we get more folks to say, no, Andy, as a matter of fact, you aren't stopping because the number we're putting in front of you uh, that's going into your bank account uh, ensures that it won't. So that's what I hope folks will rally behind and say, hey, Andy, tell us where we can donate. I hope so. I think there's another factor in play here, Marshall, which is something we're seeing increasingly in motorsport and in other areas, uh, which is people who own own the races, own the championships, wanting to do it themselves, Mm. wanting to take control of their message, wanting to be the primary uh, distributors of imagery and words and stories that the on the, the onset of social media has had 
a very negative effect on anybody trying to make their way in the media industry without a shadow of a doubt. It's one of the reasons why the news market is so unpleasant at the moment is because you're battling against, you know, um, organizations that are not very keen to tell you what's going on before they themselves have put it on all of their social media channels. You know, we, we've seen this with, with some of the, the areas that Andy has been you know, traditionally involved with, which is they've learned the lessons of how popular that is and they've done it themselves. It's as simple as that. And I think that's a bit sad. I think not supporting the, uh, the established player and doing it yourself, um, it, it's not the classiest. This is, this is a case like photography like writing and in his case graphic design where people take it for granted and expect it to be free and they don't realize how much effort and work goes into it and they don't realize what they've had until it walks away until you force people out of the business because they can't make their way you know what it's like marshall in the states it's exactly the same over here if you put barriers in place if you put hurdles in place to stop people from doing their own things independently and if there's nobody who's willing to step up the funding all of a sudden, people will moan when it goes away. It goes away. But, yeah. you know, it's people got to vote with their wallet and vote with their feet. They have. And, you know, it's the the level and the tone of criticism that comes the way of anybody offering independence, service of all the types that, that Stephen actually mentions. Possibly the people offering the criticism should take half a step away and think, I'm not paying for this. Nobody pays uh, no, no consumer, if you like, pays for anything, for instance, that we write on Daily Sports Car or on Racer.com. Um, no consumer pays for uh, Andy's, uh, Andy's Spotter's Guide. No consumer pays for the Marshall Perit podcast, for that matter. Uh, and yet, and yet, and yet, you know, copious amounts of words and images and output come their way. We hope to at the very highest of qualities. Um, and it's done with, I have to tell you, on what I would regard as being a commercial shoestring. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not kind of um, proud to say that I personally have never earned less money than I earn at the moment. And that's not just linked into where the economy is right now. It's just the marketplace in media is just not a very easy marketplace right now. And use it or lose it, I think is the answer here. And uh, the Spotter's Guide is a great example of that. It's sad if this is the last. I agree with you, MP, that there should be something in the diary uh, come January that says, right, let's make that call to Andy and find out what he wants rather than what he needs, because that, again, is is the, is the operative question. It's about time that was produced for what Andy would like to get from it rather than what he needs to make it happen. What's the worst thing about this situation is that is the sort of way these industries work now which is if Andy turned around tomorrow and said I'm going to do it next year but it's going to be a five or a person people would moan he could put in hundreds of hours like he does and have no sponsors on board and still do it and ask for a nominal fee of a cup of coffee you know worth of money to to pay for it and people would then moan but they'd moan if it was gone yep well, let's wait and see what happens. Let's hashtag wait and see what happens. Uh, Andy, before, before we go a, a step further in this argument, Andy, thank you for what you've done. You've made my job talking into a microphone in the dead of night while we're trying to pick out which of the Ferraris it is that's a little bit on fire, the Porsche curves, immeasurably easier. Um, year in, year out, 
we've been one of those partners to Andy Spotter's Guides where we've actually printed out, you know, hard copies, uh, laminated copies of the Spotter's Guide to give to every journalist in the uh, in the press room. We've uh, helped with get Andy getting some of those commercial sponsors in the past. And I can tell you that just about everybody that I've handed one of those guides to has been blown away by the level of professionalism that goes into it. Uh, I, I take personal delight in those TV shots where you see, you know, um, Lena Gaines, um engineering station on the pit wall, inevitably featuring Andy Spotter's guide sellotaped up on the walls, that if they're using it, everybody's using it. We certainly use them in the TV booths. We certainly use them for many, many years with Radio Le Mans, I'm sure uh, the, the crew still do. And we absolutely use them at Daily Sports Car. Ain't that the truth? Ruth, going to pick a few more here. We're going to say farewell. Let's go to Mitsuki Matsura, who says, I heard that Toyota decided, has decided on their driver lineup for next season. Do you have any idea of who will stay or who will go? Sounds like a bit of a seat clash. Sorry. Uh, Next year. Um, Yes and no. Uh, so what we've got at the moment are there are two development test and reserve drivers, Kenta Yamashita, who was a star at the start of the Le Mans 24 hours in the high-class racing Orica, uh, was up, right up there in the battle for the lead, uh, and Nick de Vries as their new test and development driver. Um, I think both of those guys would be great signings for Toyota. Their ability at the wheel of the TSO 50 and soon to be the new hypercar, the GA Super, GR Supersports, will be the defining decision. Have they chosen a driver lineup? No, they won't have chosen it because they don't know who's good in the new car. That's number one. Do I presume I know who would be the driver most at risk in the current lineup? Yes, I think I could guess that. But that is without knowing whether or not anybody else might be enticed away to do something else. So there's that in the mix at the moment. And without knowing exactly what contracts each of the guys has got, that's a pretty impossible task for anybody to guess. Do I think they have a notional lineup? Yes. Do I think I know what that notional lineup might be? Yes. I have a policy of not playing those games with people's careers. But do I think there'll be a change? Yes. I know you don't. You have a policy. I don't. I do. So I'm going to announce next year's lineup <laughs> it's actually a three-car lineup that yep. is being led by masanori sakia pierre Henri yes. raffinelle and kenny atchison in the first car yeah uh, if we look to the second car that would be yen lammers andy wallace and teo fabi and then yep. we are closing this expansion no, no, can't, can't be, no not teo not teo teo's not available that weekend in june so Corrado's going to do it fair enough um, I guess that's even more hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. And then we're going to we close this new expanded three-car program, Roland Ratzenberger. Uh, the spirit of Roland is back as it should be. Ige Elge and also Eddie Irvine. I also yeah. just read the 1992 Le Mans entry list for the three-car <laughs> Tom's Toyota program. So go ahead and disregard all that. Uh, let's see. Serious question, says Nick Howers. Based on the LMP2 class performance and competitiveness, does there need to be a class above it? Uh, if the top class had 24-plus entries, who would actually complain? 
that's a pretty good one there. I like that, Nick. But what, uh, it, young it, Mister? Shut up, Goodwin. You talk too no, much. No, no, not good with it. Steven, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, punch him right, and right. put you, duct you tape around his face. It's fine. Carry on. I was just going to add in the fact that there's a not dissimilar question from Matthias Longo that actually says, "What if they don't peg, peg back the P2s against the hypercars? Just give the new class, new class." a fuel mileage advantage of 14 or 15 laps against the current 11 laps of the P2 cars. Let them battle at the track, give them more high-tech cars some advantage. Is it too crazy? Your thoughts dramatically similar. Discuss. Well, we've kind of seen this with IMSA, haven't we, when they when they put DPI and P2 together and the sort of scenarios that that threw up. I don't think P2 should be the top class in its, certainly in its current form where you've got spec chassis and, and in this case one chassis to rule them all in the Orica um, because you know, the manufacturers don't like it if they're up against um, private teams in the same equipment and if you're attracting manufacturers and you want them to do a proper job and you want them to bring uh, cars that break boundaries and are cutting edge and that are marketed well I don't think you can do it if you're asking them to just fill a load of pro drivers into a spec car um, and it's just not the, for me. It's not the spirit of Le Mans to have the top class and the race for the overall win be a, be a group of cars that are you know so as sterile as the current P2s are. Yeah. As much as the racing's incredible, it's a good it's a good sort of ladder to the top class, and I think that's what it should be, and that's what purpose it has served. And once we get LMH and LMDH, and we've got manufacturers, and we've got a true ceiling, we're going to go back to where we were a few years ago, where Anybody who's ever driven an F2 car is going to want to be in those seats because they know there's some potential openings in, in manufacturer seats at the top. Going to take two questions here, a little bit left field IMSA, but I can answer them quickly and then close with hopefully an enjoyable one throwing back at y'all. Uh, Kevin Kemp asks, what is the latest on whether or not Lamar hypercar will be able to race in IMSA or at least the Rolex 24 Daytona? This was something that was brought up during the Friday press conference. I can tell you this, Kev. There is a bit of a... I don't know if bullying is the word. That's a little bit strongly phrased. But there's a bit of a bullish effort I know of on behalf of the ACO and WEC to say, hey, uh, let's have hypercars and LMDHs just race together straight away. This being obviously something where we don't know when the LMDH, the IMSA variant, is going to come online. Scheduled for 22, all but guaranteed to be 23. But their overtures are, hey, let's just put them together right away, knowing that by that time the the ACO slash WC hypercars will indeed have at least one year, if not more, uh, of experience to draw from. And... I can tell you that that those overtures were met with very tepid, polite, but very tepid responses of, yeah, we're going to wait until we get our stuff figured out, get probably a full season of running under our belts, see where it falls on the good old lap time, and then let's talk about whether we might put these two very different formulas together on track in a, uh, a straight-up race where uh, we see what they can both do and who might come out on top under a balance of performance structure. So could it happen? Yes. Is there a desire from 
the French side of the equation to make it happen right away? Yes. Are the Americans inclined to do that? Absolutely not. Still a big question mark, Kev. Uh, will it happen? We don't know. We just know that it's not expected to happen right away. Uh, Tom Firth also asks, on the upcoming IMSA regs, any immediate manufacturer reaction to IMSA further outlining its plans for LMDH you can speak of? I wouldn't say there's anything newsy here, Tom. There might have been more details unveiled and some renderings that had manufacturer language in them, like that Porsche-esque one that Andy Blackmore did. But I would not attach any of the regulatory bits that came out, any renderings you saw, as indications that there's something new that has sprang forth from this wave of info because that momentum's been going on behind the scenes for a while. So that's actually the really positive thing, guys. Yes, great to learn more, great to know more, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on beneath the current. So, um, what, what would add, MP, though, the one thing I would add, it's certainly not, maybe it's just that I've not heard it before, but in the fringes of the conversations that happened today over the very welcome announcements of the two uh, 2021 teams for Acura and DPI, uh, the uh, Ted Klaus, the HPD uh, president, saying some, I thought, quite telling words about their presumed intention to go forward. You know, he did say they're not co- confirming an LMH program today, though clearly that is our desire. It is our de- intention to go forward with LMDH, he said. And by the sound of the response to the questions to both Mike Shank and to Wayne Taylor, about what they would like to do in the future, both saying they would like to take their machines to Le Mans. And then a further confirmation, these are multi-year contracts with those two teams. Sounds to me like subject to the business case coming together and subject to the technical regulations that I gather Acura only received today, um, subject to those things being box ticked, then they're as close to a co- confirming an LMDH program as any other manufacturer. So to close that point, which is spot on Graham in the interview that I captured with Wayne Taylor that went live this morning at 8 AM, along with the news of the two teams that'll be representing Acura next year in DPI speaking to Mr. Taylor, speaking to Mr. GM sports car racing for 30 years, guy who is, the tip of the spear for General Motors in a prototype endurance competition. Why on earth would the guy who we all assumed would retire uh, with General Motors, why would he switch to a rival brand after, again, a lifetime of representing GM and currently leading the DPI championship? Quote was, really good and i'm looking for it in front of me and i'm not editing this out because this is the unpolished turd and here you go and i did have it in front of me but you know i kind of scrolled away but here we go uh honda performance development came to us and gave us the outline of where they wanted to be in the future and it truly fit where i've imagined taking our team and for me of course i want to add more imsa championships and this is the this is the answer to the non-answer but there's also one more thing in my career I want, and that is to try and win Lamar overall. And with this agreement with Acura, 
is the chance for my team to do it. So there's the answer to what they're not confirming. Why? There are multiple reasons, but Wayne Taylor is leaving Cadillac, leaving Jim, which is still a mind-blowing proposition, and the big, big, clear, clear carrot being dangled, knowing that he's had success there as a driver, is being able to go back to Le Mans, compete for an overall victory, and that, as he said, is going to be a possibility by signing with HPD slash Accurate. So there we go. Uh, we're going yeah. to close the show, gents, with what I hope is the best question you've been asked all day. This comes from Kyle H.B. Donnelly. Gentlemen, can you please describe your favorite antique Le Mans car, also says in brackets, and why it's the D-Type Jaguar? Uh, in many words, while something incredibly important is happening in the background, um, yada, yada, yada. Let's talk about this. Uh, I don't want to talk about it because this is your show. Tell me about favorite antique Le Mans car. Graham, you cannot say uh, McLaren F1 because when Damn. I've posed this to you 37 times before with other listener questions, that's usually where we come back to. Let's start with Steven. Let's find out what the uh, the young can, pup can says is his favorite. Le Mans car? Is it favorite car ever? Well, but, you know, uh, uh, to you, it might be a Lola B08 something or other, <laughs> uh, you know. Piss uh, off, 2011. All right, there we go. It could be a Rebellion Lola Toyota for all I know. But, um, <laughs> there we go. Um, it, it's hard for me to look. There's two cars. It's hard for me to look past the Audi R10. It's my favorite race car of all time. Um, it was the first car I saw win Le Mans, and as a young, impressionable fetus, um, I just adored that car. It blew me away seeing that live. Um, the other one is the fabulous Golf Mirage that Derek Bell won the Le Mans 24 Hours with. It's a wild-looking car. I've had the privilege, and I say privilege of a capital P, um, of sitting down with Derek Bell to discuss that car and talk about that win at the Hotel de France at Le Mans a few years back. And it was one of those starstruck-type interviews where I came away absolutely beaming because he is a gentleman and he is completely fabulous in every single way. Um, so those would be the two cars for me. Uh, I, I'll tell one quick Kilby story while he's here. Oh, God. This was uh, one of those moments, and it's a, it's a joy to, to share those moments, where Stephen, who must have been all of, I think, about 18 years old at this stage, known Stephen since he'd been 15 years old. And um, Stephen came out of, it might even have been that interview, and his words to me were, Derek Bell knows who I am. It wasn't after that interview. What was that? It was after, uh, when he did that charity thing, when he did the wing, the wing walking. Walk. The wing walk. Yeah, and, and um, you offered to help boost his charity and thing. And I rang him to ask to ask him about it and he answered by using my name which i wasn't expecting i was expecting to say oh, hi derek uh, it's Stephen kilby here i hope you um you know remember who i am but i just wanted to quickly ask you a couple of questions about the wing walking thing you're doing and he answered with Stephen, how the hell are you and oh my god <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell him mp but he does that with everybody <laughs> he calls everybody um, Stephen, but that's okay yeah we don't want to let you down here <laughs> Jackie uh, X, well, it, Jackie yeah, X spent the bulk of his career being referred to as Stephen X. 
So, yes, um, uh, sadly, uh, Al Holbert, Stephen Holbert, um, he's he's just done that forever. But, you know, don't don't take that personally. What am I going to choose if I'm not allowed the McLaren F1? I'm going to choose something that was not successful and just a car that holds a dear place in my heart uh, from the early days of me writing about sports cars. And I'm going to choose... By Collis didn't enter cars when you first got started. No, no. I'm going, to choose, I'm going to choose the TVR. I am going to choose the TVR, Tuscan R, T400R, simply because it was such a formative part of what I did in the very early 2000s, that car. And it was joyfully shit. It was it was every single time it had the opportunity to do something worthwhile in my journalistic life, with tiny exceptions, it would underperform and break down. Um, there were some wins, and they were they were celebrated, uh, but that car, there was something about it which was just very typically sportingly British. It, it promised <laughs> so much. And then Delivered massively so disappointed. Yeah. Massive. It's like being an England football supporter at 200 miles an hour, or in the case of a TVR, about 163 uh, miles it, an here's hour. The, here's the thing, folks. The I never saw the TVR, T400R race, but because every road leads to Rome and every DSC story leads back to the T, TVR, T400R, <laughs> I feel like I was there because Graham never stops talking about the damn I thing. And even when Graham's not talking about it, Lordy talks about it, Malcolm, and the few times I've met him, all he does is talk about Martin Short and T400R. Yep. You'd think it won every race it competed yep. in. It, it really didn't. It really, really didn't. It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. And I think it, that, that it's, it's an exemplar of what's now gone. And I think is probably, I hope not, but I think is gone forever, which was the plucky little manufacturers that could. Uh, except Lickenhouse. Except Lickenhouse. Go, Jim. Go, go on, on. Go, go, Jim. Go, Jim. Go, Jim. Um, but, you know, Spiker, Morgan, TVR, insert others that came along and went. Celine, for that matter, as another great example of it. Um, but uh, for me, they're the kind of things that I, I used to, I used to just love those guys trying and on, on occasions, you know, and bless your memory, Don Panos, Don Panos and his uh, sometimes otherworldly creations would sometimes succeed. And uh, yeah, I mean, oddly enough, there's the link. Panos, TVR, Team LNT, 2006. Oh my God, what a result, what a day that was. But um, yeah, I'm going to go for the TVR T400R. If you press me for something truly antique, um, I'm not going to agree uh, with Carl's uh, Jaguar D-Type. It is m- uh, the, one of the most gorgeous things imaginable. It would go back to Blower Bentley days. And the reason behind me loving those cars is not because I particularly like the look of the things. It's because I once was given the opportunity to passenger from central London to the Brooklands Museum for the opening of a new wing there aboard one of the Le Mans cars, road registered now, Le Mans cars. And I can tell you, even in that would have been the late 90s, the performance of that car on a modern road was still really impressive. I am most impressed that you are trying to vie for Le Mans content. We could have dual, we could have dueling Bentley blower conversations taking place next year. <laughs> WEC feed, Eurosport feed, 
Oh my goodness, this is some sort of competitive uh, showdown. I also love the fact that Graham might have unknowingly come up with a perfect hashtag for the aforementioned beloved uh, uh, broadcast team. Hashtag lovingly shit. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Look at that. You know what we've done? We have finished. We've exactly the right time. We, ha- we have. And we've also finished covering the snot out of the 88th running of the 24 hours do man's the 24 hours of Le Mans. This was fun. We should do it more often. Steven, keep it down. You talk way too much. I mean, Graham and I barely got two words in here, the whole show, but uh, we should do this more often, you know, maybe weekly. We should consider doing the week in sports cars on a weekly basis. Graham, thanks to you. Thanks to Steven and Mr. Goodwin as you are tasked with take us home. I will. For one quick uh, mention, by the way, Le Mans 2021 is just nine months away. Oh, <laughs> it's great. That's, that's uh, terrifying. For now, thank you, Marshall Pruitt. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen Kilby. Two nights straight from the day job to come here and, and do this, and it's not on his route home, trust me. Thank you to Cooper Tyres. Thank you to the Justice Brothers, to Cooper, sorry, Cooper Tyres again. I've done it again, you see, to TorontoMotorsports.com and to Bill Helmets USA. This has been the Week in Sports Cars. We've been your presenters. You've been the guys asking questions. We'll be back next week. Thanks very much. That's us done for Le Mans 2020. Woo! Now, should I have been recording this, by the way?